0: About 100 years ago, exactly 100 years ago, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was a race riot with terrible loss of life and property. And a few years ago, the uh, maybe 20 years ago, the uh, state of Oklahoma put a commission together to look back and see what happened, actually, it put an official record, and they came up with that the damages, according to court cases, came out to $1,470,711.56, according to the court cases they could find. Other estimates put it between $1.5 and $1.8 million in property damage. Now, at the time, the commission said, well, this comes out to sixteen million dollars in nineteen ninety-nine dollars Well, since it was the centenary, this sort of thing was in the news. And the New York Times did a great big report on this. And they came up with a number updated for present day. They said, actually, the property loss claims in today's dollars, $27 million. They were not the only ones. I got a National Geographic here that came just at the same time. And their estimate, a little bit more precise. $26,752,705. $26,752,705. So there's a consensus around that $27 million. Professor Williamson, what did you calculate that the damages were worth in today's dollars?
1: Um, I have to say it depends. <laughs> I'm an economist. Uh, one Simple single answer is uh, wrong because all of us, when we go to value anything, come to the marketplace where we're buying or selling with different opportunity costs. So, what something is worth to you may not be what it's worth to me relative to everything else. So, my website, Measuring Worth, stresses. That when you're going to look at a value of something in the past, you have to consider what you're, where you're looking at it from, your perspective. So I looked at that number and um, I thought, well, probably the best comparison or the best number would be to say, what if that damage, that loss took place today in Tulsa? Okay, and so you take uh, what are they, it? Was 120 homes and hotels and all this sort of stuff, and um, you say, "Wow, if that was lost in Tulsa, that share of their economy was lost. What would that look like today?" Well. There's no way we can go back and sort of see what the value of everything that was lost because only that was only insurance claims, that $1.8 million. and of course a lot of losses never, never got charged. And in fact, I gather only one insurance claim got paid off, so it, it was not, not great, but um, what we also need to know is what well, was the value of everything else in Tulsa. So we would have to say, what is the share of this loss there compared to the total value of Tulsa? Well, it could be done, but it would be an awful lot of work. But let's talk about just saying, what would 1.8 million be ratio-wise as a share of GDP today? So what I do, we do is say, okay, we're going to measure this as a output, sort of a macro cost. And we're going to say, okay, 1.8 million as a share of the 1922 GDP corresponds to, what did I come up with? 300 and some share? Uh, can't remember. 534. Okay,
0: 534 million. <laughs> uh, 534 million compared to no. estimates of 27. 27. Yes. Tremendous difference. And so,
1: difference yes and and so what I'm just saying is 1.8 million as a share of the GDP in that day would correspond to half a trillion dollars today over that and that's what if that same disaster happened today we would all be looking at it and saying, oh my gosh that's huge that's huge so that's what I'm saying, when they're looking at something as big as this, the last thing you want to do is use a CPI index, <laughs> which is what these people are doing. They're yeah, sort of he- saying, this is the cost of that in in uh, bread and cars and stuff like that. Come on. So, And then the alternative, which I also talk about, would be the labor cost, which would be, okay, let's talk about what, it would cost maybe to hire people to to do all this stuff and i come up with i think 120 million or something whatever uh, 149 a dis- 149 thank you <laughs> so anyway that just gives you a sort of a thumbnail sketch that when people come to our website to ask a question we say okay you have to tell us what your perspective is and we really have three divisions. One, which we've just been talking about, which is the output, and then there's the micro side, which is either the consumption side or purchases side, and the uh, factor payment side, which is wages and so forth. And you know, we can talk a lot more more about that and, and other examples, but.
0: Well, let me introduce Sorry. you more formally. Uh, Professor Williamson <laughs> doesn't just have a website and it's just not making numbers up. I've been using this website for years and it's fantastic. I stumbled across it because I wanted to know what the price of gold and silver were back in the day. And lo and behold, what a wealth of information. Measuringworth.com. Uh, there's so well, let me introduce you first and then we can talk about the website. You specialize in economic history, pensions, and the economics of Social Security. You're the co-founder and president of Measuring Worth, uh, and professor of economics emeritus from Miami University. Long distinguished career, you've been published in the American Economic Review, the Journal of Economic History, as well as book chapters and reviews. You co-founded the Cleometric Society in 1983, and you were its executive director for 16 years. You also created eh.net Jeff you've got to use that site the economic history services website it's fantastic you were its executive director until 2003 and then right now you have this fantastic website where there's so much information on there Let, let's talk about a little bit more about the the riot there and the ways we can measure now the national geographic i didn't see this in the new york times article but the National Geographic did not like their 26700000 figure. They didn't like it at all. They sensed that it was not enough. And so what they came up with, they said that the material losses were that, but the long-term costs to the victims, the lost ability to build wealth and pass it on to its descendants, by that measure, it was 610743000 And they calculated that by saying if they invested at 6% a year, uh, compounded annually, investment returns in $1921. But that, that's not what you do. But you can see how they're struggling. They're saying, this $26 million doesn't, that doesn't capture it, this loss that was suffered. And they came up with that number. On your website, correct me if I'm wrong, there's nine or 12 different measures. and <laughs> And then you break it down. Uh, by, okay, so if we wanted to know the value of a commodity, the value of a project, and what was the third one, Professor?
1: Factor payments. Comp- wages, basically. Yes. Income. You
0: know, and so there's those.
1: That's, that's compensation. Yeah.
0: Those three ways of going about it. Can you talk a little bit about each of those, those whichever one really captures you, those uh, measures?
1: Well, um, all three are very important. Let's talk about the commodity, which is what everybody uses, CPI. Uh, you, know, you go to Google, and you get 10 or 15 inflation calculators. Everybody throws in an inflation calculator. They all use the same prices, you know, uh, except uh, before 1929, our CPI numbers are better than others. But uh, anyway, um, if, if you're talking, say, 5, 10 years in the past, it's not bad. I always tell people uh, if you want to use the CPI uh, at, to index something in the past, don't do it earlier than the years you were in high school. <laughs> Why do I say that? It's because when we were in high school, we remembered what things cost. And so If I'm looking at something that took place when I was in high school and I say, what's that today? I can think, oh yeah, I can remember, you know, went to buy a hamburger, it was that much, but this is what else I was doing, buying things. So you have a memory of the opportunity costs when you were, uh, you know, after high school, when you were in in the economy. But if you want to go back to 1930s, you have no memory, you have no idea of what the bundle was. And in fact, uh, on my website, I I show that the actual bundle that was in this consumer price index in the 1930s was three times as much on food as it is today. Very little on services. And of course, there weren't any cell phones, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, to talk about the CPI as the measure of opportunity cost long time ago, um, gets more and more warped. There was another New York Times article, uh, which I like to use, uh, about George Washington uh, loaned a $1,000 to his nephew. And uh, the New York Times says, and that's $18,000 $18, today. And I said, $18,000? <laughs> no. <laughs> One th- for $1,000, he could have bought 200 acres of land <laughs> in, in, in 1795 or whatever.
0: So anyway. well, They gave so, us context. So ahead, they gave us context. You could get 2,000 axes, 900 yes. gallons of gin, 7,800 pounds of sugar. Jeff, this one's for you, 36,000 feet of lumber. So that was the context they offered us.
2: But I think the gin was the most valuable, though. I mean, I think that really puts in the... Con- I mean, gin was really valuable stuff back then.
1: Well, it, it's very interesting that, yes, if you look at the relative prices, which is what we're yeah. talking about, uh, of course, gin, uh, because, you know, the slave trade molasses came to uh, New England and was made into gin and the and triangle and all that stuff, we can, we can go there. Uh, but anyway, I'm saying... The CPI is the worst measure, and people keep using it. <laughs> you may have saw my other one where some guy talks about... Um,
2: Say, isn't much- that just laziness, though, right. Sam? Don't you think that's why people use the CPI? I mean, the New York Times is not going to spend a lot of time researching this stuff, and they're just looking for some some way to put a number on it so that they can just throw it out there to the public, and the public doesn't really care you know, as much as maybe they should. And I think that's really the point we're trying to make here is that you should be caring about this stuff because you're being misinformed, and I think, you know, it's just the path of least resistance. Let's use the CPI because it sounds like it's inflation, and it sounds like what we're talking about is inflation when we're really not. We're talking about something completely different.
1: We're talking about relative value.
2: Yeah, which is not inflation necessarily. That's right, exactly. <laughs> and that's why you know people don't really. I mean, no, it's, it's. I think you know, uh, it's 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 somewhat economic illiteracy. On the part of not just the public, because the public doesn't know any better, you can't blame them. But even those in the media who don't know, they don't realize what they're talking about because they're kind of writing a story about something else and just kind of throwing this relative valuation in. But in, you know, in terms of the Tulsa massacre, I think it's a little more important than just kind of throwing a number out there and saying eh, it's 27 million. It, we're re- I mean, the loss, the relative loss of value was so enormous that it was it's it's a huge scar. And to really appreciate that, you really do need to do what you're doing, which is to go back and say, let's, let's, let's look at this legitimately. Let's not just throw a, a, a PCE deflator or something and just deflate a number from
0: one to the other. And Professor Williamson, well, Jeff, and your, yeah, I'm, I'm I just wanted to reinforce that you brought that out in your blog post. You yeah. made it a point to say... This story, the New York Times story, uses 20 different sources and 14 other people listed as assisting the production. So it wasn't as if an intern put this together, and yet there's reasonable, uh, there's reasonable evidence to say that their estimate of the 27 million was off by a factor of 5 or 10 or fifteen.
2: Well, they're looking at it in the, the entirely wrong way. And I'll let, you know, Sam, you could speak to that more than I can, but it's, you know, they're thinking, they're, it's, they're even, the conception they're using to think about this is, they're you're coming at it from the wrong perspective and it's something that's more than, it's deeply ingrained in the mainstream because, as I said, I think there's a lot of economic illiteracy on these kinds of topics. We don't realize how important they, they could, they, they really are in certain instances. Exactly. Um- Can I blame Google? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, why not?
1: Our website. It's either Google or China.
2: Those are our two choices. there you go.
1: (laughs) Our website was the first website that came up when people asked this question. And they got then shuffled to say, well, you ought to think about other things. And then whatever the games have played, suddenly we fell off the Google map because somebody else had played the game to push themselves to the top and so when you go to google and say what is the value of a thousand dollars in 1947 or whatever it goes to this you know the same one and we don't even appear in the top 10 i i've actually redesigned one of our our websites so that it instantly answers that question but back to what you're talking about the sort of the ignorance and, and people want just a simple answer I've tried to talk to the editors at the New York Times and say, you know, get one of your copywriters to just be a specialist in this question. And it doesn't get through. Uh, So my thought is, got to try to generally educate across the board. And that's what we try to do with measuring worth. We have tutorials and so forth.
0: Let me give you an example, dear audience. We were talking about George Washington's nephew in 1800. He was asking for a $1,000 loan. The mainstream superficial answer is that in the, if you do a relative price measurement like the Consumer Price Index or the GDP deflator, that's between $18,000 and $19,500. In 2015 dollars, that's when this report was done, right? That does. It sounds like that's not quite right, right? Yeah. Uh, if you look at it though, on a relative wage or income scale, a thousand dollars in eighteen hundred. If you looked at it in twenty fifteen dollars, that's three hundred and ten thousand dollars in unskilled wage, seven hundred sixty four thousand in production worker compensation, or six hundred nineteen thousand nominal GDP per capita. Now, if you measure it as a percentage of output GDP, it's thirty-seven million six hundred thousand. Now, Professor <laughs> Williamson, how do we know which one of those to pick? Because, as you make clear, that there's there's a wide range in these options. Is it just you have to understand the context and then pick either wages or output?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're asking the question that my website what gets you know 2,000 hits a week Uh, you know that and and so I don't know what they're doing but what I keep saying is depends 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 you have to tell me where you are thinking you're sitting there and you're saying gosh way back then that's what that was what is that today are you thinking about how much would I have to work How much would I have to earn in order to be able to buy that? You know, if you're talking about the price of a boat or something like that, I'd have to work, you know, months and months to earn enough. Then you would use a labor intake, a a compensation index. But if you're saying, oh gosh, you know, I'm going to go buy this new car or I'm, you know, I have to go on vacation or I want to buy that boat. What was the person back in whatever? 1940 faced with, 1930 faced with, that same issue. They're looking at this, say, boat to buy, and they're trying to think what their opportunity cost is. Well, they could go on vacation. you know, They could make a down payment on a house. So they're thinking about the consumption. So you have to think what is in your mind that you're thinking is the opportunity cost that's most important to you before you decide which index is
2: useful yeah I think I mean that's isn't that part of the problem is that we're we're sort of led to think about these economic concepts as homogeneous or monolithic right there is a single value or there's a single way that we can measure these things and what you're (laughs) saying is hugely important in understanding real economics is that no the value to me is very different from the value to you, and so it's there isn't the reason that we have such a problem valuing things in the past is our past selves valued things very differently than we do, and it's really difficult to say, you know, George Washington's nephew put myself in his shoes. Well, I can't. I have no idea. I have no way of doing that. So in my modern mind, what would a thousand dollars in 1800 be? Well, it depends on what I was going to do with a thousand dollars. You know, and I think yes. it's a symptom of the bigger problem is that we're we're supposed to look at all of these things as a single homogeneous unit, and that everything is really easily answered by algorithms or equations or th- something yes. like that. Yes,
1: yes. we've all... In, in, in our economics, we, we learned something about homogeneous degree zero, right? Yeah. You know, prices <laughs> yes. double and wages double. We're at the same spot.
2: Yeah, exactly. Which,
1: which I find is really funny right now with all this discussion about inflation, and uh, you know, I'm saying, yeah, what about wages? You know, what, what's happening to real wages? But right. It doesn't seem to be s- sort of sinking in because people can't quite keep the two of them together when they're thinking. They just think, oh, prices are going up. You know, and, Use cars. Yeah, well, Okay. <laughs> I could sell my used car and get more money, but I have to buy another one. (laughs) Yeah,
2: then you have no car. (laughs) You've got more money, but no car. (laughs) No, and that's a good example, too, right? Because now you have no car. What is your opportunity cost of having no car? It could be huge. And yet, you know, that's not necessarily inflationary. Even though the price of new cars is up, that's just, it's creating a distortion, which creates a distortion in behavior that we really don't have any idea of how to evaluate because it's one of those things that, you know it's not the same for everybody everybody's going to react differently to it and that's why you know using averages as you said you know the average price level and the average wage level are the same well the averages may be the same but it doesn't mean the distribution is the same and there's the people at the bottom who are getting the the, the, the short end of the stick here they're going to feel very differently even though the averages might be the same it might be more people in the bottom who would feel very differently about being left behind that you're just not right. capturing and using these single layers
1: well, if I could just go back to the used cars though, I think go ahead. that's a really really good example where uh so a lot of the inflation you know, CPI increase. now maybe it was was because used cars. Yeah. And and so everybody's saying, Oh, terrible inflation, but I'm thinking, wait a minute, the stock of used cars is there. You know, we're not you know we're not creating not new, used cars. Right. They're it's, there already. It's an so, asset. Uh,
2: it's, it's it's not production. Asset.
1: So so everybody every time the used car price goes up that's an an increase in opportunity cost for some people who want to buy and an increase in oh value to those who want to sell and most people it's both so used cars could go up double and we could all be in the same position real terms so
2: right just so the people in the audience know in the last cpi which was for june the year over year change for used cars was I think forty-five percent. And that contributed a lot to the headline number because it's a big forty-five percent year over year change. But yet it's you know, we're taught to think, oh, that's inflation. What you know, as as you're as you're pointing out, well, inflation to some, value to other, and I think it's more value than anything to most people, and there's other more complicated costs and or mother complicated considerations too. You can't look at these things as this is what it is and this is the only thing that it is. Mm
0: -hmm. Professor Williamson, can I ask you to expound on any other further thoughts you may have on uh, inflation because that's the hottest topic right now and I think the audience would come after me and be very upset if I didn't ask you. As, As someone who knows prices and values through time of things and projects and wages, is there a way that we should be thinking about inflation? How do you see this debate where people are talking about whether or not it's transitory or permanent, or perhaps even that's just a too narrow of a discussion that we're focused on? But you, as someone who studied this, there's a, a wider perspective that we should take on. How are you thinking about this debate?
1: Uh me <laughs> you, you get stuck into it, but um, no I've listened to you guys talk about it and I think you, I think uh, you have a, a good perspective uh, I- inflation even by itself is is a term which uh, has difficult meanings to different people you know yeah. uh, I talk about um, one of my examples when I start our essay is okay you see $20 on the sidewalk. Uh, What is that? Well, to the homeless guy who finds it, that's great. And to the guy who's getting out of his limo, it's the tip. It gives the the guy that's going to take a car. So the change in relative prices uh, can have small or zero effect on people or can have more effect but going on to the macro area which is i think what you're talking about um i think there's nothing here that i see which indicates this is this is a long-term trend uh you know i've lived through (laughs) the period in the 70s when i got a payment for a a house we had sold and i wanted to rush to the bank to get it in the bank before the, <laughs> the next day because of the interest right that's not the world now it's just not the world so um used cars they can't keep going up because you know the demand's going to get saturated it, there'll be there'll, there'll be an income effect they've had the price effect and there will be the income effect and you know you can go to all that side of stuff so um simple answer is I think uh, the only way you know to to do to talk about it is just wait and see you know it's it's a short-term thing right now it's transitory you know if your wages are matching you know your real income is doing well and my god the stock market has gone up and so people's portfolios have been increasing real-time extensively so if Somebody's portfolio has gone up 40% in the last three years. And then they're saying, oh my god, inflation is 5%. I, I think they're, they're, you know, they're worrying about something that shouldn't be too big a worry.
2: Yeah, and that's part of the problem, too. You know, Going back to the uh, the theme of economic illiteracy, and yes, inflation is a very emotional topic for people, usually because of the grocery store, and rightly so. Yes. I mean, you notice the price of food. When you check out and say beef prices have doubled, or I think they've doubled, I mean, that is your mode of inflation you think about that mm-hmm. and that's what it is and there's nothing wrong with thinking about that but you know we have to be careful that's not necessarily inflation And the way i define inflation i think is the typical textbook economic definition which is a sustained period of price acceleration that's not you know it's not transitory it's not due to supply factors it's usually a monetary in fact it's inflation is always a monetary phenomenon yes.
1: and it's not yes. just a
2: year, it's not just a month or two it's year after year after year it's a sustained uh and it's uh the the other part of that is that it's not just one segment of the price bucket or another it's usually a broad and sustained increase in consumer prices and that's yes. i think you know that that concept is lost and again it's it's understandable because you know, especially nowadays, you go to the grocery store, and when you check out, you notice that prices have increased, but yet you don't notice some of the prices that haven't increased, the prices that haven't exactly. decreased. You know, maybe your wireless phone bill is a little bit less than it was a couple years ago because of competition in that space, and you're thinking inflation because of food, and you're not thinking, well, inflation is probably tame because of these other things. And so it's another one of those areas where we're taught to treat it monolithically when there's a whole bunch of concepts that you really need to, to incorporate into overall analysis. I agree, and I think, and you know well,
1: that the consumer bundle, relative to 50 years ago, yeah. uh, shelter is the biggest component and so people's rents haven't increased or maybe they have so there's some inflation there utilities maybe but most people or not most people a lot of people live in what we call owner occupied <laughs> housing so there's an imputed rent in my house and that's that's what's in the CPI and so uh you know that cost may or may not be going up or down but it's it's a big chunk of the cpi and it's a big chunk of what people spend on but they don't see it as you say they go to the grocery store they see it instantly but they don't think at all about their housing costs and transportation and health care that's healthcare care is another one which is almost impossible to figure out
2: yeah right <laughs> well, yeah no, but it's huge right it's and huge. There's, there's all sorts of problems with the cpi itself i mean are we i mean I always. I mean, it's it's probably easier to take an average of the numbers in the phone book back when we used to have phone books, you know. (laughs) Because I mean, we're talking about the average urban consumer, right? That's really what the CPIU is talking, and that's is there really an average urban consumer? We're going to pick this one person and say this is what this is what your price bucket is, and then we're going to assume that it's valid for enough of the rest of the economy that that we're actually capturing the consumer price picture. So I mean. People have all sorts of problems with the CPI to begin with, which are, you know, legitimate and valid questions. So, you know, again, this isn't an easy issue to get into because there's the emotion, there's illiteracy, there's lack of analysis, and we don't really have a whole lot of really good data as you, as, I mean, that's the whole point well, behind I, your Actually, website. I have to
1: say, I have to say that the, the, I think the CPI is one of the better measured numbers. I mean, they got lots of people, and they do a lot of surveys, so, you know, it's defined a certain way, and they do a good job of measuring it, but most people don't know what it means, as you say. Yeah. They go to the grocery store, and they that's see their grocery bill going up, and they say, oh, my God, that's it. Well, that's what I say is, look, when
2: I, when I talk to s- about the CPI, what I tell people is, look, you can hate it all you want, but you have to realize that there's good correlations there. When the CPI <laughs> is low, for example, it tends to correlate with bad economic outcomes. And so yeah we can hate the cpi we can say it's not you know it's not accurately measuring it's 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 got all these you know problems with hedonics and everything else but yet it seems to be useful <laughs> it seems to tell you yes. at least when things are not going well when we see lack of inflationary pressures that is not just the cpi saying it. it's there's a lot of other things that agree so whether yeah. or not we you know what, whatever's going on in the CPI, it does seem to have some kind of validity, some kind of legitimacy that we can establish in the historical record. So if you see the CPI, mm-hmm. especially on the low side, that's you know, my opinion, that's when you really need to pay attention to it. When it's, when it's going downward, you know, deflationary, disinflationary, that's an important signal.
0: Professor Williamson, yeah. uh, you said sure. the CPI is, they do good work and that it's reasonable and appropriate. A lot of people that listen to our show are bristling they they think it's that there's a conspiracy and that it's been okay. purposely a, i mean that's a widely held Emil,
2: that's a widely held position there's lots of people sorry. all across all walks of life who think the cpi is is just garbage which
0: is and so there well, it, have it, been it, attempts it is garbage to, yes okay go ahead no 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 I'm i I'm those, just- There have been attempts to come up with alternatives. And so if you want to comment on the CPI, please do, Um, and how it is garbage, but that it's the best garbage we have. But there are these alternatives, uh, shadow stats, the Billion Prices Projects, another one whose name is escaping me. I'm sure you've seen them, and I was just wondering if you had any opinions on these attempted uh, different alternative measures.
1: Well, as Jeff said they're all very closely correlated i mean to to i mean the the cpi doesn't double and the GDP deflator stay the zero change i mean <laughs> right. they, they move they move together and when I say i think the, the people who measure the cPI do a good job, I'm saying they are people who work for the BLS and 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 they do their job well you know they they go out, they sample. They think tremendously about how to introduce new goods, which, uh, you know, we can spend spend a lot of time on how we introduce new goods into the GDP and and so forth. It's hard work to introduce a new good. Uh, For example, to put a new good in the GDP, which wasn't there before, uh, well, how are you going to compensate for, you weren't counting it last year, but you're counting it this year, did the GDP go up? That much? No. So you've got to sort of make an estimate for the previous year and so forth. So I, I, mean, I talk a lot about the measurement issues, but all I'm saying is they have a definition, they work hard, and they, they I think they measure it carefully. But what we're, what I'm talking about is don't misuse it. Yeah, also, right.
2: It's not an exact number, right? It, it's, you know, and we yes. get this, the, you know, the pseudo precision that goes along with it. Like inflation was 3.1762% oh, last month. Yes. No, no, <laughs> it's, you know, we can't take it that literally. It's like I tell people with inflation expectations in the TIPS market. You don't take it literally. The, the, the TIPS market inflation break-evens are not saying that the CPI is gonna be exactly 2.42% for 10 years. It's, it's measuring relative changes in relative position, I think. You know, if the CPI says it's, it's you know, 5% this month, well, that's a high number. It's not exactly 5%. We don't know it's exactly high percent, but the, we can say that that's probably higher than it's been in the last 12 years, and that's really all it tells you. And going back to the measurement problem, Sam, it, it, it's exactly right. We can't blame the staff at the BLS. They may have what is an impossible job. How do you measure consumer prices across a dynamic economy as the U.S. economy? It's there may be no way to do it. It's just impossible. And so in some in some sense, it's maybe incredible that the CPI has performed as well as it has, so long as you're not taking it literally. It's not literally saying that your consumer prices have advanced this much this year. It's sort of a relative gauge of maybe how things are changing in in ways that we can't really accurately measure.
1: Yeah. But you can get the cpi for 20 different cities and so forth you can you yeah. can break it down but paralysis by analysis you're talking you're talking about an interesting point about sort of this the accuracy uh, if you go back and to the, to the giants like simon kuznets and so forth they kept saying don't give a, a specific number give a number with a range over and over, and Morganstein. My fam- my most favorite book is on the accuracy of measurement uh, by Morganstein. He said, uh, publish numbers with ranges. What what I really love is somebody has a number they constructed. Okay, it's over here. It's three point four three point four seven eight, and we're going to take twenty percent of that, and we're going to get this other number, and we'll report it to four significant digits. And I say, wait a minute. Twenty percent times that could be nineteen and a half or twenty point five because twenty percent is only accurate to two digits, so this number over here should now be given in the range of the least significant digits that you trust, but nobody does that so <laughs> it would be would be helpful if we could teach people about uh, the ranges you know significant yeah. digits and so forth. Standard well, air. you know, I mean,
2: you look at the GDP number, and it's got now how many digits to it. So we know it accurate to the billion dollars. <laughs> no, it's no, even though no. oh, my 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 biggest pet peeve is the payroll report. I mean, the payroll report comes out, and the BLS says, you know, that we we added two hundred and fifty thousand jobs last month, and that's not what the BLS actually says. What they says is we may have added two hundred and fifty thousand jobs. What we're really saying is that if we run the sample a hundred times, we expect in 90 of them that the average will be at two hundred and fifty thousand. That's what they're really saying. The okay. range is all over the place, and their conference interval is only 90 percent to begin with. and so there, there really isn't a whole lot of pre- precision in a single month's payroll report. but yet, you know again, talking about economic illiteracy and getting back to you know why people are understandably confused, that's not how it's presented. It's presented as if. We have, you know, the U.S. economy added exactly 262,403 jobs last month. And I, we, because of but t- I But I have to interrupt you. I think it's, it's much worse than that. <laughs> okay. And I wonder if you've
1: had a discussion in the past that people think that, well, there's this, you know, 100 million people that go to work every day. And then, oh, there's another 50,000 that are now going to work this week that didn't go last week. No. The turnover every day is larger than that number that we're talking about ads. So what they're saying is, okay, there's a certain stock of jobs, and people are coming and going, and people are coming and going all the time. And so we had just a few more people coming than leaving. A few less going, right. And that's back to your thing about participation rate. People are coming in and out of the workforce, some of them 15 times a year. You know, they go in for a week or two, they go back out. So uh it, it, it's it's a different world than what people think.
2: Our our one of our major themes is always about Things are more complicated than it appears and more complicated than you probably know. And that's really, you know, this is why we love bringing guests like you onto our show, is because you're someone who has actually thought about these things far more deeply. And that's, that's really what we like. And we, we stress to our audience you need to think about these things far more deeply than you see in the newspaper or on the internet or anything like that, because you're, these are very complicated processes. And yeah, everybody wants an easy answer, but there are no easy answers. We don't have any easy answers for you because even our measurement techniques are subjected to biases and assumptions and constraints, you know, just limitations and all these other things. That's why we need to look at things in terms of how do they fit in a particular concept, but also how do they fit in the context of the wider condition of what everything else is going on right now. We talked about the labor turnover a remember Emil, quite a few, uh, few episodes ago. Reconciling the the monthly changes in the the establishment survey with jolts, for example, which you can do yeah And it's it's somewhat helpful because it's it it shows you the point that you're making is that you know There's a certain churn in hiring. There's a certain churn in quitting and layoffs and all these other things But yet what's missing from both jolts and the establishment survey is the participation rate which doesn't get captured in any of those things. And I, and, you know, as you're saying, and I, as we've been saying, that's probably the most important part of the labor numbers anyway.
1: Yes. I, I would like to go back to the whole purpose you have me on and say, okay. Yeah, we got you, a little distracted. The, <laughs> yes, no, I, love, I love to talk. So, so, but somebody, I mean, I. I actually started this website because I I created this EH net thing and people were sending me these questions. Oh, Uncle Charlie, he bought that house in 1920 for 10,000 or for $2,000. What's it worth today? (laughs) And I would say, oh God, come on. I can't answer that until I know where you're coming from. So what I try to do is say, okay, you got something in the past, a price. It's a number. And it's either a market price, Some a, a trade took place. You know, so we know there was a buyer, and we know there was a seller. Um, and you want to think about it, you want to know what it's worth today or what the price today is. Well, let's just go back to that period. OK, so you know your grandpa sold that house for $2,000 in 1920. Uh, don 't try to think of that today let 's go back to nineteen twenty and just think, well, what would two thousand dollars do then and and it 's not impossible. you know you can look at newspapers or other things. you think out what was going on in nineteen twenty and what that twenty thousand dollars would do and it, it, what's and, and the genealogists are always talking to me about this stuff, you know oh, this is mad and so I see. Well, you know, you're talking about this person back in that period. What was going on then? So if you can do that, uh, and think about it that way before you extract yourself to the present, then you can get a feel for that number. And and in my essay that about measuring, you know, measure the best measures, we spend we do nineteen thirty-one and we have a lot of different things in there. And I have the Empire State Building, which was built, you know, fantastic. And so you compare it using the CPI, oh, it costs $41 million. But if you use share of GDP, it costs about as much as uh, you know it's a trillion. So it, it depends. But you can look at the Empire State Building and you can say, well, how, many, how much would it cost the workers then and so forth? So uh, if you can just get people to think that way, that's what I'm pushing.
0: Yeah, you list several fascinating comparisons. Uh- when you're comparing wealth, like Andrew Carnegie in 1900 to Bill Gates in 2017, a loaf of bread in 1931, an accountant's salary in 1931, Babe Ruth's income, Al Capone's fine, and then the Empire State Building. Yes, you say using the GDP deflator, 543 million. But if you look at it as a as a proportion of household costs. It's 1.54 billion. And if you look at it as labor, how much labor would it take? 1.98 billion to 2.6 billion. But then it goes up from there. You, you do it on a, the broadest measure, if with the economy at 10.3 billion. So you've got a, you've got you know, ranges. And that's what your site provides Um, if you've got a list here. So we've been saying it depends, but so people might be intimidated. They'll say, well, I have no chance. But then on your site, you do provide guidance. You say, if you're measuring a commodity or income or wealth or a project, here are the measures that you want to use. So you do provide guidance and then people have like three, four, five numbers that they can sort of triangulate towards what it might be worth today how we can relate to it
1: thank you for explaining that
0: (laughs) i love it you know i love it and and earlier and you know that's not it i'm going to keep going you know there's you've got about two dozen measures on there for the united states uk australia and spain so it's not just what we've been talking about the united states you've got stock markets gdp cpi wages everything gold and earlier, we were talking about complexity. You think the price of gold is just the price of gold. Holy cow, Jeff. There, you wrote a paper about it, I be- believe, Professor Williamson, how you calculated the price of gold going back 900 years, 800, over 800 years. It's not easy, Jeff. It's not easy. There wasn't just one you mean There wasn't price. just the Wall Street Journal price. Yeah. For no, the, $1, well, $1, there $1. was for a while. <laughs> yeah. There was for a while. I, I but can't imagine different coins. Yeah. How do you exactly different coins with different content? I
2: mean, it's we live in a dynamic, complex world that it's only getting more dynamic and not complex to begin with. That just makes it much more di- makes your job <laughs> that much more, that much more difficult because you're trying well, to. Well, actually,
1: actually, actually measuring uh gold back to 12th century or whatever uh in some sense is not as hard as it is now because uh there's wasn't a lot of different things to buy you know right. so they have a few price indexes grain and a few other things and so as you know gold would be in coins and so if you had a gold coin and you know what the weight of the coin was I and mean, then then you had uh Diaries and all sorts of reports of prices. Then you find a price of gold, and, and so it, it, it's a pretty s- simple m- measure because we're not measuring it against a ton of different things. You know, there's 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 no monetary stuff or so forth. It's it's just it's a fiat. It's 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 these it's the base, but that's. It.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the difficulty probably comes in in trying to find that primary source material and the usable, trustworthy source material, right? Because there's got to be a lot of, or maybe not a lot of, information about some of those things in diff- different time periods. I wouldn't know, but uh, no, there's there's,
1: there's a tremendous amount. Of Is there archives? really? Oh, no yeah. kidding! Oh, yeah.
0: Well, it was very impressive, that report, that write-up explaining how the price of gold was calculated. I found it very impressive, exactly for the point that you're raising right now, Jeff, knowing where to source and then how to transition from one monetary, I don't know, era period to a new one, where a new standard, how do you identify the standard? That's the key, going back through time. Anyways, I, I thought it was great. I thought it was great.
1: Well I think I think I Emily mean, you're you're raising the the crucial question about gold is that you can't think gold of in the same concept uh in the past as you do now because we were on a gold standard, you know, through the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. And you know, that meant exchange rates were determined and then we go off gold and so forth. So, uh, it's, it's a very interesting story, but it's certainly not the same thing.
0: <laughs> Professor Williamson, you're also written a lot about pensions through time. Yes. And right now, Jeff, this is something we've never talked about on the show, so I guess it's as good a time as ever. There's a lot of, do you have any opinion about where we are today? There's a lot of concern that these pensions, are never going to pay out in real terms what they promise, but they may in nominal terms. Uh, are you concerned that we're facing a, a pension crisis, or it'll never come to a pension crisis, because the politicians won't allow it? and it'll, Everything will be paid out, but in, in a grossly devalued, less worth, less valued terms than what was originally promised.
1: How much time do we? <laughs> we need a thirty-second
0: yeah, yeah. answer. Right. <laughs> this is the lightning round.
2: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> well, if you know Arissa, there, there's a, there's an organization that ensures pensions. But the, but you got to start with the there's the defined pen defined contribution pensions and there's the defined benefit pensions. And to easily explain the defined contribution pensions, you put a certain amount of money in. And it's invested or so forth and when you get to retire you see what's in the pot and you get that uh, you know an annuity or whatever and uh, if the market goes up great If the market goes down no if it's been invested defined contribution pensions though are you put a certain amount of money in but your pension is defined on a base of your salary often you take 2% of your salary times the number of years you worked. So if you work 20 years, then you're going to get 40% of your final salary, something like that. Those are the pensions that got into trouble uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and they are, except for the public sector, they're that, pretty much gone. And the public sector is getting rid of them, too. Yeah. I like the, to say that the 20th century is The history of the 20th century is you're on your own to you're on your own so at the beginning of the century no pensions at the end of the century (laughs) no defined benefit pensions you're back on your own and i've done work that in 1900 uh, the biggest employer in the country was the pennsylvania railroad and they created out of scratch a defined benefit pension and that took off and the, the, the biggest period, of the post-World War II, when the unions, uh, well, actually during World War II, for tax reasons, pensions became very important. And then in the 50s and 60s, the defined benefit pensions were very, very important. And then for a long, lot of reasons, they kept getting uh, beat on and declined. And, of course, employers don't like them because they have to guarantee them, uh, so forth. So um, I think that defined contribution pensions will, those that are still there, will be paid. Uh, define, I'm sorry, defined benefit pensions. Yes, so defined contribution pensions, stock market keeps going up. Okay, your benefits keep going up. It's scary, I think. the The worst thing I, faced all the time I was teaching was when my students would tell me social security will not be there when they retire. Uh, I just, I said, no, (laughs) social security is a transfer program. And as long as we decide that the older people should be getting transfers from the younger people, it'll be there. So, we can spend a lot of time talking about that, and I'm sure many, many of your listeners think that Social Security won't be there, but it will, as will Medicare.
2: As long as the government can tax, they'll continue to pay.
1: Yes, um, it's, a, well, you know, Samuelson has his overlapping generation model, but uh, we, we're not going to let our old people starve, okay, particularly if they're our parents. So, what's Social Security well,
2: did? Particularly since they vote. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. From the perspective of the politician, that's what, they, I mean, senior that's citizens right. vote and they vote in high numbers. So, yeah, I think they're a protected yes. class when it comes to benefits and transfers.
1: Yes. I, I got into some uh, academic fights with Feldstein about how he, he said that uh, Social Security reduced savings and so forth. Um, but the key question was, what did social security replace and i contend social security replaced people taking care of their parents directly so you know your parents they're gonna have to move in with us we're gonna have to pay for their this that no we're gonna pay the government money and they're gonna pay the parents but there's no difference it's just instead of me paying my money directly to my parents so they can, yeah. you know, eat. I'm going to pay the government, the government's going to pay it, And that's also
2: security did. It was a substitute of that transfer, a redistribution. I mean, they call it a transfer yes. for a reason because it transfers yes. Yes. from one perception, but it's not, I, I think the argument against it would be, and you probably know us, it's that it's more generalized than that. It's not like I'm taking money that I would have spent on my parents and I'm giving it to the government. We're actually taking money from people, everybody. And then, you know, sort of throwing it in a pot and giving it out to the older generation and they sort of, you know, it's more dynamic and complicated than that. But I think on, on a macro scale, what you're yeah. saying is exactly right. It wasn't yes, like we right. started and, and, doing something, you know, we created something. We just changed the order of things, which is not right. the same thing. Yes. I,
1: I blogged on Huffington Post years ago about social security and I got tired, but some person said, but it's not insurance. I said, Well that's what it's called. Old age insurance. No, no, it's <laughs> not insurance. It's not insurance. I said, Yes it is. If you you're betting to the government you're gonna live past sixty five and uh but anyway.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's a whole other can of worms there.
0: <laughs> The next episode.
2: Yeah, I was- Well, I mean, we've hit all the emotional topics, haven't we? We've got inflation, we've got gold, we've got social security. Race riots at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) Professor Williamson, we've talked about measuring worth. Anything else that you wanted to tell the audience before we go? uh, Any of the other projects, anything that you're working on, any way to contact you, let us know.
1: Well, they can go to Measuring Worth and, and contact me there. Uh, you know, I'm happy to to have feedback. Uh, um, you no, know, my uh, while I I, I I dabble in a lot of measurement things. I'm trying to uh, uh, take the GDP measures before 1929. There's a lot of misconceptions. Uh, you know, business cycle information. You know, people have to go back to late 19th century they use our gdp numbers but i don't like them i think the business cycles are probably different so this kind of stuff the measurement issues i'm doing but general i back to my original thing is don't simplify or no don't think that you can't think about measuring something in the past with a perspective Think your own perspective before you go to the damn website. Oh, there's the number. Because once you get that number, you say, "Oh my gosh, that's the number." Before you go get the number, think about well, what is it that you're trying to measure, and what is is it? Is your opportunity cost or society's opportunity cost? Are you the worker or
0: are you the customer? That's my. That's my.
1: Soapbox,
0: that's my soapbox. Well, thank you very much, sir. Sure. Thank you.
2: Yes, thank you. We really appreciate it and love to have these kinds of chats about some of these, you know, it's an important topic, but it's also a relevant, germane topic to what's going on. Most people are talking about inflation and uh, valuations and things like that right now. So absolutely appreciate your time.